From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. On today's podcast, Afghanistan. This month marks 17 years since September 11th, and 17 years since the United States first committed forces to Afghanistan. I gave Taliban leaders a series of clear and specific demands. Close terrorist training camps, hand over leaders of the Al-Qaeda network, and return all foreign nationals, including American citizens, unjustly detained in your country. None of these demands were met. And now, the Taliban will pay a price. But violence still persists. Since that speech, tens of thousands of Afghans and more than 2,300 Americans have been killed. In early September, Taliban insurgents launched separate attacks on Afghan security forces in the country's north, killing more than 50. The attacks happened in four provinces in northern Afghanistan. During the fighting, the Taliban captured one government center, adding to the growing list of insurgent-controlled Afghan districts. Currently, there are about 14,000 American troops still working with Afghan forces to stem the violence. The strategy? Compel the Taliban to negotiate. But that doesn't appear to be working, as President Trump admitted last August. Someday, after an effective military effort, Perhaps it will be possible to have a political settlement that includes elements of the Taliban in Afghanistan. But nobody knows if or when that will ever happen. There has been some progress, such as getting more children enrolled in schools. But the country still faces enormous security and economic challenges. And as American forces have pulled back, the Taliban has steadily taken over more territory. Meanwhile, something unexpected has happened the Taliban has begun to govern. Instead of blowing up infrastructure, it has co-opted it. In enormous parts of the country, the Taliban is the government. Few people have better perspective on this issue than Ashley Jackson. Jackson spent much of the past year crisscrossing Afghanistan and interviewing Taliban leaders. She wrote a piece about those experiences in the fall issue of Foreign Policy magazine. It's called The Taliban's Fight for Hearts and Minds. Jackson is also a research associate at the Overseas Development Institute, a London-based think tank. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. I actually want to start with the fact that you've spent a tremendous amount of time in Afghanistan. You're not uh, someone who just parachuted in. You were there as an aid worker, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that. And and then you left. So tell us about your time as an aid worker and, and what prompted you to go back. Yeah, so I first went to Afghanistan nearly a decade ago to work with Oxfam, and then I worked with the UN mission there in political affairs, and that was a very, very different time. The thought that the Taliban would be in the position it is now, sort of surrounding Kabul, having the kind of influence it has, would have been unthinkable then. Um, This was right before the big troop surge um, and the real sort of robust counterinsurgency approach. And again, I mean, it was this sort of hopeful time um, where there was still a sense that this democratic government in Kabul could still take root. You know, Afghanistan still had some hope, although security was getting worse. And then during the three years I spent there working there uh, until I left at the end of 2011, I mean, it rapidly deteriorated. Um, I ended up, uh, my time in Afghanistan, living in eastern Afghanistan in Jalalabad, which at that point was more dangerous than anywhere else in the country, really. And it was a situation in which... The government was, particularly in that part of the country, but in many parts of the country, full of warlords, criminals, drug barons. It was very hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys. Um, And I really left quite disillusioned. But I kept going back. I mean, 
I end up doing research on armed groups and on humanitarian access, sort of using my background as an aid worker to try and help the UN and NGOs to figure out how to negotiate in very difficult places like Somalia, like Syria later on, Central African Republic, other places. But I kept going back to Afghanistan every six months, every year to do research, to check in on the situation. And I mean, it's the one place I've worked where I've never really left. It's it's my second home in many ways. And I sort of have this abiding interest and kind of loyalty and attachment to the place. What was your initial draw to the country? What were you hoping to do? I mean, I was a young aid worker. I had worked for the Red Cross in Southeast Asia, and I was sort of just starting out in my mid-20s. And Afghanistan was a place to be. It's difficult, and it's a challenge, and it's complicated. And I think that's one of the things that drew me there initially and keeps me coming back as well. But of course, you form attachments. You know, you you have friends. You have, I mean, you certainly have many friends who still live there. And you just come to care about the place. So do you work with translators? And how do you find them? Sure. So, um, yeah, I do work with translators. My Dari is, is pretty terrible. And my Pashto, even worse after <laughs> years of trying. But I also work with not necessarily translators, but Afghan journalists. Um, these are the guys and women who know much more about the terrain of how things work um, and who have the relationships and the understandings of how best to talk to the Taliban or how to get to really difficult Taliban-controlled or influenced areas safely. So, yeah, I definitely, without their help, this none of this would have been possible. How do you get around the country when you're there? Very discreetly. I mean, when I worked at the UN... You're bound by these security rules. You're in, like, armored vehicles. You don't leave the compound without permission. Now when I go back, I go back just as myself, unemployed or <laughs> freelance, whatever sounds more favorable. But I travel like any Afghan would. I take taxis. I travel in sort of Toyota Corollas, which are pretty ubiquitous in Afghanistan. I try to dress uh, somewhat conservatively, although I'm sure anyone on the street can figure out, you know, I'm not an Afghan by the way I look or the way I walk or whatever it might be. But I try to travel discreetly. I'm curious, though, because actually, of course, when you began a decade ago and and even before that, you know, with the first American forays after 9-11, there was a lot of talk about the Taliban and women in particular um, around women's role in society that was controlled by the Taliban, about women's dress. How did that affect how you worked? It's not just the Taliban. When I first went there in 2009, certainly, I had this image of this Taliban regime that had taken over in the 90s and had this incredibly harsh policy towards women. Schools were shut for women. They were confined to the home. They couldn't access health care, all these kinds of things. Those are true in many respects. However, it's not just the Taliban. They're deeply ingrained values across a wide range of actors, many of whom are in government now, who simply believe that women shouldn't work in spaces where men work, women's role is in the home, women should wear the burqa in public. I mean, these ideas are not limited to the Taliban. And I think the enforcement of burqa you know, in public happened long before the Taliban under the Mujahideen government. So what's important to remember is that it's not just a Taliban problem. UNICEF released a report a couple of months ago about how girls' enrollment in school was falling. That Again, that's not just the Taliban. It's a number of factors that sort of coalesce to limit women's rights, to limit women's public engagement, to limit their access to human security and public goods and services. So 
yes, it's the Taliban. The Taliban represents a very sort of conservative, rigid set of gender norms, but it's not only them. But does that affect how you're able to move and operate in either Taliban-controlled or outside of Taliban-controlled parts of Afghanistan? Does it change the way people receive you? Or as a Westerner, are you just received differently no matter what? I think it's probably my being an American, my being a Westerner is probably stranger and more difficult for me to navigate. As a woman, you know, obviously I wear a headscarf in public and, you know, even traveling, I would argue it's probably easier than it might be for a man in my position because I can wear a burqa and, and you can't tell who I am for security reasons when I'm traveling in a car, you know, mm-hmm. you're kind of this anonymous face, which helps in many ways. But, you know, I've never been received by the Taliban fighters or the civilians I've interviewed for this piece with anything other than respect and a level of openness um, and a welcome, which is is surprising to me. I mean, they're endless patience with my questions. Given that I am an outsider, given that I am an American, I think was something that endures with me. And, and I don't feel that I was treated any differently or they were hesitant because I was a Western woman. Um, if anything, I think I'm less threatening. How did you make contact with the Taliban leaders and members at the outset? You know, I first went last July, so over a year ago now, to sort of suss out, like, could I actually talk to the Taliban? Nobody was really out there going and trying to do this. So there were a lot of unknowns. But what I was hearing from friends and what I was reading in the Afghan media was that there was a system of Taliban governance happening and... I thought, okay, what if I could now talk to a Taliban judge or one of the Taliban officials, like someone who regulates the schools? So I basically started by asking Afghan journalists for help. And I did it as an Afghan would. Mm -hmm. Um, I did it through connections and relationships and people who I got to know and who I began to trust. Because at this point in the war, everyone has a brother or a cousin or a relative in the Taliban or with links to the Taliban. And indeed, you need people on both sides to, to ensure your survival or to, to pass messages just in case something happens. Say a family member is kidnapped or um, you have a problem in your home village, which is in a Taliban-controlled area. So I really drew on friends who could introduce me to members of the Taliban, who could introduce me to interlocutors to the Taliban. And that's a very slow process. What did you notice that was changing about the country in the course of the decade that you were observing Afghanistan? The really dramatic change, I think, was was around 2014 when, of course, the drawdown of troops sort of came to an end and you had a much reduced troop presence. You used to have these provincial reconstruction teams across the country doing development projects. Those closed. The UN presence also downsized a bit in terms of their presence across the country. And the Taliban rapidly expanded influence and control. But they did it in such a way where it wasn't necessarily through all-out assaults on trying to capture cities or spectacular kind of military operations, although there was some of that. But they did it through this sort of quiet, creeping strategy. So you began to hear more about Taliban governance, which, you know, the Taliban for a long time has publicized its judges and its shadow governors, but we didn't really see evidence of them on the ground. Like in 2009, you heard about Taliban justice, but it was largely in the South or it was it was sort of in these areas which were always going to be Taliban areas mm-hmm. and it was pretty limited. But by 2014, 15, 16, you began to hear about them regulating schools. 
about them regulating and taxing NGOs or going into health clinics and inspecting health clinics to see if the medicines were expired, all the kinds of things that I write about in the piece. And this was different. This was new. This was a shift in the Taliban that seemed unique. They'd gotten themselves together. They'd gotten organized. And they finally had the train because there's nothing in their way. You know, the government had melted away, essentially. The international forces were much more limited in their presence and the activities that they were willing to engage in to sort of prop up the government. So you really saw a number of factors coalesce so that the Taliban could shift strategy and they could begin to govern. Did you have any dicey moments yourself as the international community withdraws, as the UN uh, you know, reduces its presence? Did you have any moments where you faced greater risk than you had before? This is a hard one to measure because I think when you live in places like Afghanistan where there's sort of an insurgency, there's explosions of violence, you become so used to it. It's it's that old sort of metaphor of like the boiling frog. Mm-hmm. You get used to rocket attacks. You get used to sort of close calls with IDs or whatever it might be because it becomes such a normal part of life. And for Afghans, it is very much a normal part of life. The most harrowing thing has been losing friends and seeing people I respect, people who made such an incredible contribution to the country, particularly journalists, um, get caught in the crossfire or deliberately targeted. I mean... The attacks on journalists over the past few weeks, certainly uh, the death of Tutolo reporters recently, that's the stuff that is far more wrenching and heartbreaking than than if a convoy drives over an IED. I mean, the close calls I've had are nothing compared to sort of the emotional devastation of watching other people perish in the conflict. I mean, obviously, in the last few weeks, there have been some pretty dramatic attacks on, on journalists. But have you seen that over the course of your time there increase as opposed to decrease? And also, how does that affect your own sense of safety, though? Yeah, I've seen it increase for sure. I mean, when I went there in in 2009, you had a couple of large-scale attacks in Kabul, but nothing like the relentless pace of attacks in the capital that you see now. And I notice it mainly in people's demeanor and, you know, the fear that people walk around with every day. Certainly in the south of the country, when I went down to Helmand with, with the photographer who, who worked on this piece, Andrew Quilty, we drove out of the capital into the districts. And I've never in Afghanistan seen this level of devastation. The amount of airstrikes, which have increased dramatically over the past year, it was visible. We walked through towns that the facade of all of the shops were just riddled with bullets. I mean, it was obvious evidence of the war that no one bothered to clean up because the territory keeps switching sides. So why paint over the Taliban graffiti, even if the government controls it, the, the Taliban's coming back. So this sense of, of hopelessness is, I think, what I feel most profoundly. And that, I mean, that is is absolutely heartbreaking, but you can see why it's gone on so long. And there, there really is no end in sight um, for people. And they just have to find a way of, to survive. What does this all tell us about the American presence and war in Afghanistan, both the Taliban's resurgence, but also this hopelessness? I think all sides, including the U.S., have known for many years that the war cannot be won militarily. Yet there's no political strategy for ending the war still. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is the real failure. It's not the failure of the, the military strategies. I mean, it's the fact that there's no objective and no real 
sense or process of how to end a fight that we know that we cannot win. So at this point, it has this deeply, deeply cynical quality. You know, the U.S. strategy over the past year or so since since it was announced, what results has it yielded? Not much, as far as I can tell, except more suffering, uh, more lives lost on all sides, um, and the war drags on. How do you explain the fact that the Taliban has survived 17 years of war with the world's strongest superpower? The Taliban are incredibly resilient, right? They've managed to survive the death of Mullah Omar. They've managed to survive, you know, incredibly intense military campaigns, campaign after campaign directed at killing and capturing its leadership. Part of it has to be down to the resilience of the Taliban as an organization that has this adaptability. But a lot of it, much more so, is down to the sort of flawed strategies that have been employed um, to nation build in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. but also to combat Taliban influence. I think they've profoundly misunderstood the nature of the conflict. The vast amounts of American aid ostensibly to build a legitimate government have done just the opposite. They've created corruption and rent-seeking and rot. Mm-hmm. And there's also been a reluctance, I think, on the U.S. side, on, on the side of its allies, to admit when things were not working. In 2011, I mean, I think there was a moment where... There was energy around the U.S. pursuing political and peace talks. And that was the beginning of a recognition that the war could not be won militarily. Yet nothing happened. There were, there were no viable peace talks, at least in terms of a formal process, put in place. And the war has continued, you know, for the next seven years until the present. So it's partly the Taliban, but it's much more so the failure of America, the Afghan government, and the international community to build a viable and legitimate state that can deliver services and that can secure the territory. And the Taliban is stepping into that void. Absolutely. The Taliban is stepping into that void uh, and presenting an alternative model. But they're very smart Mm -hmm. about it because what the international community has done, the great success stories are education, healthcare, basic services. They're not great in Afghanistan and much more remains to be done, but they've put viable systems in place. And what the Taliban does now, instead of attacking schools or attacking symbols of the government just because they're the government and the international community, they co-opt those systems. So you have internationally funded NGO-run health clinics. You have government schools running in Taliban areas and the Taliban regulating and monitoring those systems because the Taliban recognizes they can't create a government from scratch. And why should Mm -hmm. they? There are elements that they can sort of draw into their own structures to provide for people and say, look, we can work with the international community. We can work with the NGOs and we can do it without corruption. We can do it more more fairly than the Afghan government does. Um, And we can do it in line with Islamic principles and ideals and in a sort of virtuous way. Um, so, So they've gotten very, very savvy about building this alternate a political order, which, you know, takes and cherry picks, you know, the good things that the international community has built, and in some instances, makes them run better. You know, the schools are notoriously corrupt, but the Taliban makes the teachers show up on time, because you lose your job if you don't show up. And you also face the wrath of the Taliban, which is a potent incentive to sort of do your job. Mm-hmm. Are they then seen as sort of saviors of the system or seen with respect or, or how, how how does the population respond? 
I think the population at this point is neither naive nor idealistic. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you're hedging your bets constantly. So you're really looking out for your family and for yourself and for your own survival. I remember talking to one teacher in the east of the country and I was like, well, what do you think about the Taliban? Because he, he had talked about, you know, he had been a teacher for 30 years. He had worked with whoever was there. It's no problem. The students still come. I mean, he was, he was being very diplomatic about the whole thing. I'm like, well, what do you actually think? And he just turned to me and he's like, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is that I can work with whoever is there. You know, my preferences don't matter is what he was saying. So I think that's the attitude a lot of people have, basically making bets that enhance their prospects of survival. Let's get into the story that you wrote for our print fall issue. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you decided to go about presenting the Taliban's role in Afghan society now. Well, I was doing this research for um, about a year, and you can't really understand the contradictions of the Taliban running a government school or the kind of bargains that people make to get by unless you're sitting in the room and talking to them and hearing the stories. You know, this is a very different narrative of things. We often hear the U.S. narrative. We often hear the international community's narrative. But to hear it from, you know, the people living through it in the villages, I think was very important because I think that's a missing piece of the story and a missing piece of our understanding of how the war has actually worked, what's gone wrong. I think what's interesting as well is this idea that there was this narrative of almost condescension about the Taliban, specifically certainly in relation to gender, but definitely in terms of what their knowledge base was. And what you talk about a little bit as well is that they're more worldly, they're better educated, they're they're more competent at governing, and that you've actually sat down with them not just in Afghanistan but in Doha and it's not quite the regime that we often heard about, especially in the news at the beginning of the conflict, you know, the blowing up of the Buddhas, for example, or, uh, you know, what happened to women in the street. Sure. Um, 20 years ago in the mid-90s, these were guys from the countryside with very little education, usually religious education. They had fought in the Mujahideen. And if they had been outside of their villages, it was maybe to Pakistan, but probably not. And they were often from the south of the country. And when it came to running a government, I mean, the Taliban unexpectedly, even to themselves, marched through the country and gained 80% of the country in a matter of months, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't know how to govern. They weren't technocrats or bureaucrats. They were fighters. Or before that, they were farmers. So I think in the years of exile with the Taliban leadership, I mean, after 2001, a lot of the key leaders either melted back into their communities, but many fled to Pakistan, right? And they learned. They learned a lot. Their sort of attitudes towards the international community, I think they recognize, didn't help them. But then again, they didn't have diplomats. You know, they didn't know how to how to engage. I mean, no one taught them. They were exiled, even when they were in government. Like very few, there was no recognition. They had this alternate representation at the UN based in Flushing and Queens. They had this. They were the black sheep, mm-hmm. right? So in these years of exile, they went to Dubai, Pakistan, Turkey. They were introduced to different things. They had seen more. They interacted more through dialogue with the international community. What I also found in talking to these figures was an element of nuance on Taliban policies, um, these sort of draconian things, the sort of execution of of uh, adulterers in football stadiums, all these kinds of things. There was internal Taliban dissonance over these policies at the time. 
And the most striking thing and the only predictable thing um, that always happens in every single interview I've had, which is probably over a dozen now with a Taliban leader, is that at some point in the interview, without my asking, he'll bring up women. And he'll say something like, well, of course, all of my daughters are educated, or of course, we support women going to school. In Islam, it says that it's even more important than um, educating a man, all these kinds of things. They say these things unsolicited to me because they're aware of this reputation. Um, it doesn't take away what their ideology might be. It doesn't negate that. They still have a strong set of beliefs around gender roles, around uh, the role of Islamic law and, and punishments. But they are trying to engage in a dialogue on these issues. But do you think that's a change of heart or do you think that's recognition of the reputational impact of the women's policies internationally? I think it's a recognition of the impact and that it's going to be a key barrier to any power sharing deal, at least Mm -hmm. in rhetoric. Like the way that negotiations will have to be presented in the West will have to deal with like Taliban's attitude towards women. There'll have to be a narrative shift in the Western story told about the Taliban. They'll have to be made acceptable. And the Taliban wants to assist in that because they want talks. They want a power sharing deal. They want an end to the war, right? And they want legitimacy. Um, And I think one of their greatest gripes is that they haven't been recognized, that they've been treated unfairly. Like the Mujahideen, some of the people in government have even worse attitudes towards women, yet they don't get slammed for it like the Taliban does. What's the end game? What do you think is the best case scenario? Well, it's been a really interesting few months. You had the unilateral declaration of ceasefires over the Eid holiday. And then a couple of days later, the Taliban, much to everyone's surprise, reciprocated. The Taliban flooded into cities and everyone was sort of like handing out flowers and taking selfies. And there was a pause to the fighting. After more than a decade and a half of war, this was an unbelievable surprise to, I think, everyone involved. And it raised hopes that this could be an opening and create momentum for peace talks, which it has, absolutely. And I think the U.S. policy, at least, you know, the the diplomatic policy, has done like a 180 hard pivot towards peace. All of a sudden, it's almost like whiplash-inducing the way the U.S. thinking has changed, at least in certain sectors of the U.S. government. Um, although that's not homogenous, certainly the military, certain, certainly other aspects that have more heavily invested in the war are probably more reticent to make that shift. But it's happening. The problem is ceasefires don't usually work that way. You need like a monitoring mechanism. You need a, an agreement. Um, but peace like radically broke out for no reason almost <laughs> in in June. So. So that's unlikely to be replicated. What you actually need in Afghanistan is a peace process. You need something that sets up the table and keeps everyone at the table. And that's not only the U.S., the Afghan government, and the many factions the Afghan government comprises, and the Taliban. That's also a wider array of actors like Pakistan, Iran, Russia, China, and so on. So I think while there's optimism that talks can move forward, the shape and form and the architecture and the the sort of scaffolding that will will hold a peace process together and drive it forward is still completely absent. And there's no clear indication of of what that architecture is going to look like. Do you see yourself going back? Are you staying with Afghanistan or are you going to move on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I took a little bit of a break after this research was finished, but I'll be going back in October. I mean, I think it's a very interesting time to be working on Afghanistan, so I wouldn't miss it for the world, of course. (laughs) 
what will you be working on? I want to really look at two things, the upper levels of the Taliban. I mean, for the past year, I've been looking very much at this sort of village level, what it's like to live under the Taliban, what the Taliban strategy is as it manifests on the ground. Because unless we understand their, you know, quote unquote, policy making processes, what drives them, what kinds of influences they take into account, you're not going to understand how to influence Taliban policy. A second thing I'd like to look at is more about the local level deals and accommodations that the Taliban has reached. I mean, there are some districts in Afghanistan where they are kind of Taliban held, but the violence is dramatically lower. And you get the sense that there's been a deal struck, that there's the parameters for some power sharing at the local level. And that, too, is a very important thing to understand. The terrain of the conflict is incredibly complicated. And in the north, in the east, in the south, it's all kind of played out differently, which means that when there is a peace process, God willing, um, it will have to be implemented differently in different areas. So we need to start to get an idea of like how local deals are struck because there might be like a central political agreement, but in order for that to hold, you're going to have to sort of build consensus and strike deals at the local level. So that's the second thing I want to look at. How does your family feel about you going back and forth to Afghanistan all the time? I mean, they hate it, um, but but they're proud. I think, you know, I don't come from a family of, of journalists or foreign policy experts. Um, so they've exhibited uh, remarkable patience uh, and support. I don't think it's easy for anyone, but it's certainly not easy. It's not easy for Afghans. I mean, I have the luxury of coming and going, right? But many, many Afghans are either stuck uh, or they risk their lives to leave. Ashley Jackson, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. That's Ashley Jackson, a fellow at the Overseas Development Institute. Her piece on the Taliban fight for Afghan hearts and minds is in Foreign Policy's Fall Issue. Thanks for listening to The ER. Our podcast is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. <laughs>